Hey guys, welcome to episode number 39 of the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. This is Keir from Rugby Strength Coach. In today's episode, you're going to hear from Bob Alejo of NC State University. At NC State, Bob is the Assistant Athletic Director and Director of Strength and Conditioning at one of the most prestigious universities in the country. For the movie fans out there, Bob was also Head of Strength and Conditioning for the Oakland A's during the Moneyball era. And we talked a lot about this in the episode, but amongst other things, we discussed how Bob got his start as a strength and conditioning coach, what it's like to balance the demands between the two jobs that he currently has at NC State, why he thinks all of the fashionable talk about culture amongst coaches is really just bullshit, and how programming should change as an athlete progresses through the four-year college system. In particular, which numbers we should be paying attention to and why. Lastly, we finished up with a short discussion on those people who have influenced him most throughout his career and who up-and-coming strength coaches should listen to. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast and you want to check out more information like it, be sure to check out the Rugby Strength Coach community. This is an exclusive members website that I've created just for coaches, and it offers a unique combination of video lectures, online discussion, and career advice that's going to help you to take your coaching career to the next level. Each month, we offer a 60-minute video lecture from a strength and conditioning coach working at the elite or professional level of sport on a topic that is dear to their heart. This is not just the stuff that you get taught that matters when you do your accreditation, your UKSCA or your degree. This is the stuff that keeps elite level coaches up at night that really matters in their job in the real world. We've got presentations from guys that work in the NFL, professional soccer, elite level track and field, uh, the NRL in Australia and New Zealand, international rugby, professional cycling, the list goes on. We have over 30 hours of video lectures and the list is growing all the time and you will get access to all of these when you sign up to become a member of the Rugby Strength Coach community. Not only this, but you're going to get access to the online discussion forum. We have hundreds of members from all over the world working at the very, very top of the game all the way down to novice coaches. Here, you're going to be able to discuss every strength and conditioning topic under the sun to ask questions and get answers and share resources. Lastly, we also offer a special area of the forum dedicated to career development. Here, you're going to be able to get advice from coaches who have been there, done it, brought the t-shirt and worked at the highest level of the industry. Here, you're going to get advice and all the things you need to do to build the career that you want, including networking, CV writing, interview prep and climbing the ladder. So if that sounds good to you and you'd like to try it out, just go to rugbystrengthcoach.com members and enter the code word TRIAL. This is going to allow you to sign up for 24 hours at the price of just £1. If you like it, keep it and you can sign up to become a regular member. If you don't, just get in contact with us, cancel it, there's no strings attached. If you don't like it and it's not for you, no problem. But for now, sit back and enjoy the podcast. Bob, how are you? Good afternoon or morning, wherever you might be in the country. I'm fine, I'm good. How are you? I'm excellent. Yeah, it is morning here in Tokyo. Uh, Thank you very much for doing the, the podcast. Very much appreciated. Flattered, flattered to be invited. Great well, you're um, you're someone that Jada Mayo listens to a hell of a lot, and um, if it's good enough for Jay, it's good enough for me. Ha! I say the same thing. <laughs> well, he's he's a questionable individual sometimes, but um, professionally, for, uh, really speaking of right, in, yeah. indeed, indeed. <laughs> so, um, for people who haven't heard of you, Bob, uh, who are who are you, and and what do you do? Uh, right now, I'm the uh, assistant athletic director, director of strength and conditioning at North Carolina State University. Uh, I'm in charge of all sports and direct, uh, directly reported to by all the sports, including football. And my primary responsibility is men's basketball, although, um, you know, I, my, my, our philosophies and methods are, are 
of one nature and kind of one voice amongst us all. How do you split the the kind of practical and administrative responsibilities of that role, or do you just get doubly busy? Uh, well, I don't think you split them. I think you just kind of attack them the way you do. You know, I I um, kind of stayed away from to do lists and that sort of thing. I think the the biggest thing you do is you just attack them as they go. You, I think what you find out is if you get a to do list at this level that you know of the 10 things you started with on monday eight of them may not even have budged because of all kind of the arrows you're fighting at the same time also too you know meetings and things like that i think you get a lot lot done with casual conversation throughout the days not to say that formal meetings aren't important but uh i think you'll i think the greater part of your information gathering comes from these informal conversations that happen throughout the day throughout the department with my whole staff and other coaches and support so uh look you know when i first started back in the 80s there was only two coaches at every single school in the country and we worked from dark to dark every day couldn't wait to get to work and hated to go home it was just so much fun so i mean it's hard for me to say that it's double duty or hard work. I, I just have never viewed it that way. You just, I mean, like any sport, sport you're in, sport I'm in, you just do it. <laughs> you know, you just you have a job task and you just do it, you know, however long it takes. It beats having a real job. Yeah, right, right, right. So, yeah, it said something, you know, I'd uh, hate, hate to have a real job, right? I oh, wouldn't know what to do with myself. For sure. Is it right you started as a professional athlete, though? No, 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 I didn't. I didn't. I started as a. Um, uh, I played baseball in college, all through college. But the first, okay. yeah, the first thing I did, my first, well, the first big job I had was 1984 at UCLA. So I was there uh, coaching for 10 years, and then I got into pro baseball. So that that was as close as uh, I was going to be to being a professional athlete as any other time I had to. In fact, I told my dad, well, dad, I'm into the big leagues. The story <laughs> is oh, I'm coaching. So all those things we talked about from Little League, little league on up uh, kind of uh, – formed itself into coaching at that level. How did you make that transition from, from being an athlete to, to starting at UCLA? What, what kind of series of events transpired? You know what it was? It was, just, it was just weightlifting in general. You know, I was a little guy and, you know, not very big in height or stature and found weightlifting. I remember weightlifting at an early age in, in you know, ninth grade back then when there was the universal machine that we used to use. And, um, I, I went to a junior college down the street and I went down there three times a week. I had no idea what I was doing. I just tried to mimic, you know, some of the things that, that were being done in the gym uh, and just got to like it. So I competed, competed as a power lifter in high school, later on competed as an Olympic weightlifter, you know, locally. Um, and, you know, when I finished baseball in college, I coached baseball for a year or two there and it just – it wasn't the same, you know, I didn't think that kids had the same fire about the game of baseball that I did. So I, I knew that it was going to be hard for me to instill that in, into kids. And, you know, if I think back, high school athletes, then every one of them aspires to be a pro athlete. You know, I, I wanted to be a pro baseball player. Um, so as, you know, as I transitioned into college, um, I'm, simply it happened this way. I was working at a sports medicine center a year out of college um, that was a hospital-based sports medicine center in town. And I was walking down the halls at my school. I got pulled in from the track and field coach 
And he said, hey, I want you to take a look at this. And it was a magazine. And at the time, the magazine cover was, I'll never forget, it was EJ Jr. from University of Nebraska. He was on a Nautilus pullover machine. <laughs> Funny how these things, you can remember these, right? And uh, it was the cover of the National Strength Coaches Association Journal, which later was named, as it is now, the National Strength and Conditioning Association. He said, this is the thing where you could be still involved with weights and sports, but not coaching sports. Take a look at this. And that's where it all started, 1981 or some two, you know, and then all of a sudden, 1984, I get my first job at UCLA. So I, I think the transition was an easy one to be involved and compete, get people better, that kind of stuff, things that I thought I was really good at. I mean, I don't know that I was the best athlete, but I know nobody worked harder than I did. Yeah. And I just kind of thought those things really met at a nice spot for me at that time in my life. And you were at uh, UCLA for a decade, right? I was, 84 to 93, yeah, it was, uh, it, it was extraordinary to say the least. I mean, we, we had probably the 10 best years collegiately probably to this date. I mean, we, in those 10 years, we won 25 national championships across all of our sports. Mm. I and mean, then I think that's extraordinary. I don't know if that would ever happen again. Um, what what yeah, was, was special about that when you, when you look back? Well, it, it was just a special time. It was the start of my career. It was all new and, and you know, all as, as, as time went on, I realized who these kids were. I mean, they're, you know, men's, women's volleyball. Eventually, those teams then uh, produced the National Player of the Year, produced Olympic team members, national team members. Soccer was the same same way. They only had men's soccer then. Ziggy Schmid, who you know is, uh, was the head coach at, at the Sounders, where our friend David Tenney works. You know, he was a soccer coach then. So, you know, we probably, in those 10 years, probably put more guys on the national and Olympic team than, um, you know, any school around at the time. And so, you know, tennis, uh, there was this player. And so I was able to look and see what – the best players in the world were doing, you know, so if you look at our track team, I'll give you an example. The head sprint coach for the women's track team was Bobby Kersey, who eventually wow. married Jackie. And so he had all his girls out there. So any one day we would go out and see Jeanette Bolden, Jackie Joyner, Gail Devers, um, Flo Joe, that whole group. John Smith was the men's sprint coach. Yeah. So he had, you know, the cream of the crop, the best of the best out there running on the track uh, our throws coach was art venegas arguably the best throws coach in the world even today you would argue that that's still the case and so we had the best throwers out there and so i was able to see what the best athletes not only collegially look like but either then or later on to see those kids that i worked with as freshmen sophomores and juniors became the best in the world so i was exposed to that immediately and i mean it was it was frightening to see how many great athletes came presumably that prevented you from Look. picking up any bad habits and so on. Oh, it was incredible. Yeah. Incredible. So you're in a successful university. You're winning national championships left and right. Yeah. You're in the same place getting to go home at a reasonable-ish hour. What, <laughs> yeah. what prompted the decision to uh, go into professional sport and be forever on the road? Well, I, I, it, didn't prompt, it wasn't prompted by me. Oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I... I um, Long story short, I'm at home. I get a phone call. There's no cell phones quite yet. Well, I think they were, but I think the cell phones were probably about this big then. Yeah. 
and uh, they look like field phones from some old army movie. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I get a call from Barry Weinberg of the Oakland A's and said, hey, Bob, this is Barry Weinberg of the Oakland A's. And to which I responded, who is this? <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> you know, and he said, this is Barry Weinberg of the Oakland A's. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I got a bunch of friends that are, you know, pretty darn funny. And I thought maybe they're pulling a joke on me. So he called me and said, listen, um, I understand you're doing a little bit of work with the Oak, with the uh, Los Angeles Lakers. So the Lakers had, had had me doing some stuff with some of their guys because one of the coaches on our team was Brad Holland, who was a former Laker when I had men's basketball. So Gary Vitti, their trainer, who just retired after 100 years with the Lakers. Yeah. Um, Called them and said, "Hey, we need we need we need somebody that could work with these two kids." Who at the time was Vladi Divac and Eldon Campbell. And do you have anybody? They said, "Well, we have a guy here that we works with our team." And they said, "Well, you know, how's he going to be with these kind of guys?" And he said, oh, "He doesn't care about that, you know, money and all that. He, you know, he's good." And well, we don't want a football guy. No, no, no. This guy understands the sports. So I started doing some stuff there. Barry Weinberg, who was the head trainer for the Oakland A's at the time, his good friends Gary Vitti called him and said, "Hey, we're thinking about hiring a strength coach. We don't have one." But I think it's time we do that. Who do you have? Well, we don't have anybody, but we have a guy from UCLA who's done some things with us. And, you know, same old story at that time was, how's he going to be around high-profile athletes? Is that bothering him? Is he going to be a fan? And he said, no, 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 that's not, not, not this guy. And so that's how it started. And I, and I actually had no idea what baseball, you know, even though I'd been a baseball player most of my life up until, you know, I graduated and then, uh, you know, I was working with baseball on campus. I didn't really know what was happening in baseball. So I kind of asked around, you know, about the Oakland A's and all that and went out for an interview and thought, no, oh, maybe it's time for a change, you know. So uh, also knowing that, you know, extra money came with winning, which wasn't really happening at UCLA at the time. You, <laughs> you might get a ring or an extra plaque, but, you know, the the uh, electrical company doesn't care much about that, do they? So they uh, <laughs> nor does your mortgage. So I said, well, if there's a chance to do that, let's go do that. So that was that was part of it, too. But I think it was just it was the challenge of the thing. It was me being the first time strength coach for the Oakland A's, just like I was the first assistant in UCLA history. And I, I thought I'd take that on. And, and uh, I'm glad I did. It was a big part of my career. What was it like to work in a a sport that has such a demanding schedule as baseball. You, you mentioned off air, it's like 160 games a year. Well, we were talking off air about the season, but but in totality, it's about 200 games a year if you include the spring training games in March. Uh-huh. So yeah, so there's there's a few games there. And um, one I learned in pro sports how you kind of transition your paradigm a little bit on training into injury prevention. You know, keeping players on the field. I hate to say injury prevention because really, all injury prevention is is good training. There's yeah. nothing specific about it, right? So when you say, "Oh, do you have an injury prevention program?" I say, "Yeah, we train hard. That's what we do. We train hard. We train smart. That's my program." But but you learn that there's the risk benefit ratio switches a little bit. Where you might you know you might stick your neck out a bit when you're developing young athletes, not not to hurt them, but you know you you try some things where you're your ability to take those risks at the pro level aren't are aren't only limited they're nil i mean you don't you know you, if your owner's paying somebody five million a year to throw fastballs you certainly don't want to hurt his wrist doing some funky new wrist exercise you thought was pretty cool yeah <laughs> you know you stick with the basics and learn um that was number one the other thing is i learned how to train 
on the days that you play and the days that you play the next day. So, you know, we play every day. We lift weights. My guys would lift weights after the game um, from about 10.30 to anywhere between 11.30 or midnight, and then we'd come back the next day. So not only were, were we training after the game, but we also had a game the next day. Wow. So the manipulation there, the density of training, you know, the manipulation of volumes and intensities is critical. And I learned that because, I, you know, I never had to have been exposed to that before. And then when you take the fact that, hey, tomorrow – we're playing a game that changes, you know, it's, it's okay to train after a game, but when you train it after a game and tomorrow you have another one, it changes the way you train, you know, sure, yeah. but at the same point, you have to also know the physiology to say, but I still want us to improve. You know, we still have six more months to play, four more months to play. How do you balance that and, and get a result? So did you ever find yourself, you know, obviously this is a conversation that I have a lot in, in rugby and say, well, the, the great thing about training is is that long-term it makes you better, but then in the short-term it actually makes you a little bit worse. So you have to balance that against the desire to be fresh and, and play at your best yes. versus, well, maybe we're going to have to take it on the chin that if we do want to get better, we may have to kind of take a little bit of a hit in terms of performance. Did you ever identify periods throughout the year where you said, well, listen, we're, we're confident we're going to win this game or we can put out some weaker players and actually we can tolerate more fatigue with a view to being robust and, and fit and strong later in the year? Um, you know, that's a great way to identify it. Uh, I've said it in no, you know, in, in other words, but, but you're right. You're, you're going to have to have a little bit of short-term fatigue to get long-term, uh, the long-term best results, you know. And so the way, I, the way I talked about it in baseball, and I think, you know, rugby's a little different because you only, you only have one match a week, although they're, they're fatigued, make no question about it, but, what I tell them guys is, look, you, we, we've got a plan for October when we're when we're going to win championships. If you're going to, you know, and of course the argument that that every coach probably gets in season at some point or another is, well, I'm really tired, and my response has been a canned response every time. If we're going to wait till you're fresh, we won't lift at all. It, it's just it's just impossible. So, um, but I do use like a three up, one down or a four up, one down. We'll train hard for three or four weeks and then take an off week. I think when you work cyclical like that, that's one thing. I think your alternation of intensity and volumes makes you able to play and at the same time make progress throughout the season so that you're at your best at the end. Look, I think all sports are the same. I, I don't use the term maintenance because it's impossible. Nobody's maintaining strength during a competitive season. I don't care if you're playing badminton or whatever it is. You're not. It's impossible to do that. Um, my idea is we want to change the slope of fatigue. So I want my slope here while your slope is there, and then I want to play you. So that's that's how I look at it. From baseball perspective at the time, I say – if your bat head speed is, you know, 100 miles an hour um, and it only drops, you know, a few percentage points, we're hoping that pitcher out there is not doing the kind of training we're doing and his fastball drops 10%. Now you're ahead of him. That's when you that's when you have the big Septembers, you know, where you can come out and, and compete. And I think, you know, in rugby, I think it's talking about power, speed, co collision resilience, you know, like – yeah, well, will you be a little bit tired? Yeah, but if I make you fresh now, 
we're going to have no no problem getting hurt in a month or two because we're going to lose strength, we're going to lose speed, we're going to lose endurance, and you're going to be susceptible. We're going to put you in a spot where you're going to be able to compete, and at some point, the mentality is going to say, that's just the cost of doing business, me training and be a little bit tired. But it's going to be the kind of fatigue where you, we're not going to think about that. We're not going to use that as an excuse for any sort of performance decrement. But at the end of the year, we're going to be faster and stronger than the next guy. That's what we're doing. Yeah. You you were there during the um, the Moneyball era at the Oakland. Oh, yeah. What, what was yeah. it like to be a fly on the wall for that? Wow. Well, I went back to the A's for a second time uh, between 2008. Well, from 2008, 8, 9, 10, 2009 to 11, then I came here in the third year of my contract. Uh, so I didn't finish all three years there, but my point is it was hard to go back. You know, when I got there, it just, you know, you remember when I left, I left at the peak of this money ball thing when it was just fantastic. So it, it was an extraordinary time. I mean, we, we were having some of the best months in the modern era of baseball. I mean, we were not necessarily setting records, but if you looked at some of the scheduling and some of the things we had done, it, you know, may not be duplicated, but the way I look at it is when I first started in 93, we weren't very good. I mean, you lose 100 games in baseball, that's kind of the yard mark of a disastrous team, right? And then we slowly gained and gained and gained. Ownership changed, with which the movie talked about. And then we start acquiring, you know, our draft, you know, our – our front office who was in charge of the draft and evaluating talent was fantastic. Mm. So we end up taking these kids and they eventually end up being MVPs um, and full-time major leaguers, you know, when they, you know, they were guessed as just being, you know, players that were best available and fit in our program. We developed them really well. And then we just started winning games. And it was something that was as special as you can imagine it to be. I mean, the atmosphere is incredible, especially because, when we weren't very good, those those kids were still around when we got really good. Yeah. So you were able to, you know, it wasn't like a, like a normal pros thing where, you know, all the guys were coming in and coming out and were only there for a little while. There were some guys that were there through the duration when it wasn't all that fun, you know, and we were getting, you know, taken advantage of sometime during games, just getting piled on by, but we all, we all, I'll tell you, here's the one thing I did learn. You know, when you talk about a winning atmosphere and, uh, oh, you know, that team, they're, they're, they're so tightly knit and all that. I think it's a little bit of a crap, right? Because if you look at winning teams, go, go find me a team that's winning a championship that hates each other. They don't get along. They don't like to show up to the game. They don't hang out. You know, Mike, it's, it's, it's really. We did that when we weren't very good. And I say we, the players, you know, I mean, the players did that. We, we would always say. Wait till we get good. If we get good, it's going to be hard to stop us because we knew who we were. You know, I mean, we knew we weren't the high-powered money machine that some of these other teams were. But I'll tell you what we did do. We played hard every night. And if I look back and think about it then, you know, we had chemistry and we stunk. <laughs> so yeah. it's hard to find a team that has chemistry and is not very good. But we were it, which made us really good when we got good. Now, our mentality was really top-notch there. Now, from a training perspective – there was no no more players in the weight room after a game than our team. We dominated every weight room we were in. We had tons of guys in there, and you know we were known for that. We were known for hitting homers and 
and pitching. And, you know, I didn't have to work on any speed program or any endurance programs. We were a powerful team and, uh, and they all bought in and, you know, Billy Bean was a huge conductor of that orchestra. I mean, he backed me a hundred percent. I was involved in, in meetings and felt a very much a part of things that we did instead of maybe which strength coach typically could feel like, you know, I know I'm a part of this, but I'm really not sure how much, and I'm not invited to this meeting or that meeting. I was there for all of them. I felt, you know, like an obligation if I didn't already work my ass off. Just It was just obliged to do that because you were part of the machine. So it was a blast. So, you know, I think the, the buzzword that people would use hearing you speak like that is culture. Um but you've, you've got an interesting opinion about culture. Well, I think I said the word twice, but I'll say it a third time. Yeah. I think culture is kind of uh, in a way. I mean, you talk about, you know, we have to have a winning culture around here. Well, first you have to win. <laughs> I mean, you yeah. can't have a, we have to have a winning culture and be crappy. Um, I, I think, you know, I think what I'm trying to be is a little bit, you know, more of a, a semantics expert on this than anything. But, you know, sh- words are powerful. We should choose the right words, right? Yeah. You know, I think when you when you talk about a culture, I I think it's more of, of a philosophy or uh, not a policy, but a mantra of sorts. Like, here's how we do things. Whether we're winning or losing, this is what we're doing. Yeah. And you know, the players are the name of the game. Anybody who coaches that doesn't think that is it, or anybody who's a strength coach who thinks, oh, we're winning because I'm the strength coach, you might want to check yourself a little bit. There. I mean, <laughs> It's, it's the players. Believe me, I'm a way better strength coach when my players are really good. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, But I also don't think there's any irony in the fact that most great players train their ass off too. Mm. So, I mean, that it's not like the old days where you can get away with it. You know, now you find out that everybody from LeBron James to, you know, whoever you want to pick, Russell Wilson, they're, they're great, great players, and they train hard. They pay attention to their diet and their sleep and everything. So, um, But that being said, I, I can only think of a couple things. I wouldn't, call, I wouldn't call what we did with the A's when we were losing a winning culture. I would say our, our work ethic was persistent and resilient. I mean, it was a work ethic that we put down. We're going to work hard. We're going to work hard at this. We're not going to make mistakes. I mean, I, I don't know if you call that a culture or not. I, I, I'm hesitant to call that because I think a lot of times, like I said, we talk about, we see, don't we see that every year, right? In whatever sport it is, you know, there's some story on that team that's doing well and, oh, they're having so much fun and they love each other and all that. And, well, they're winning games. <laughs> I mean, is there any is there anything more of a, of an anesthetic than winning games. I mean, everything is, is gorgeous. You know, it's just, uh, every day is fun. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I think, I, I think I'd like to switch that culture word to something else. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure if I can come up with the right word for it. I'm not sure I'm in charge of that either, but, uh, I, I, I just have a hard time with, you know, we had to get a better culture here. Yeah. Well, I, I can, um, I can relate to that a little bit. We, uh, when I was with Argentina, we we found ourselves in the Southern Hemisphere tournament, which is number one, two, three in the world, and us, and we lost um, seventeen in a row over three years. But when we uh, when we won the eighteenth, it all got a lot easier after that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so you you know, it, it doesn't mean you have to work any less or hard. I mean, I, I used to I used to take exception, not only personally but for the guys on my team 
when they say, you know, well, the Yankees, you know, they're so businesslike, you know, and they're and they're all about winning, you know, and they're all that. And I say, well, you know what? That that's a little bit inflammatory. I I think it's offensive to think that they want to win more than any other team. Mm. I mean, it's like in the days when Man United, you know, was was dominating the league. They'd say, oh, they're just you know a businesslike, very well oiled machine who or nothing, you know, all about winning. Every team in the damn league is all about winning. It's about the players. If you don't have them, there's nothing you can do. Yeah, and so when yeah. they said it about, oh, you know, I, I, I took umbrage because I knew when I trained my guys, we worked our tails off. We just couldn't win any games. And so I used to think, I, I, I think it was, I think it was a derogatory mark to everybody in the league to say that the Yankees wanted to win more than everybody else did. Yeah, I mean, having having deep pockets doesn't hurt. <laughs> Correct, correct, and, and but but then again too, then you then you have the other argument, don't you? Like they got you know they paid they paid to have the best players in baseball be on their team, but they didn't win the World Series every year either. Nah. So there's well, something I mean, you, said about- um, you saw Leicester Leicester City in the Premier League, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Very what interesting. So you know you're you're at NC State now. Mm-hmm. You got a lot of sports underneath you, um, mm-hmm. and as as a director of, of strength and conditioning, you're, you're driving the philosophy and presumably how people work. Yep. What kind of model do you have whereby you're able to be consistent across the sports and with the members of staff that you have underneath you, but still provide enough flexibility for people to work how they think they need to work and, and meet the different demands of each sport? Is it quite structured? I'd say, yeah, it is structured. I mean, and, and I wouldn't say it's loosely structured, but it is structured. I, I mean, look, in the, at the end of the day, I think when you, you can coin it any number of ways, but, but our, our task is essentially to make athletes run faster and jump higher. And I say that kind of uh, flippantly because if you, if you look at the things that make you do that, you know, that's you know, Olympic style weightlifting, that's squatting, that's flexibility, that's change of direction, all these things end up being that because, um, you know, that's the important part of it. So what, the way I talk about it is we don't, you know, we have, we might have different methods, but our philosophy is the same. You know, we, we if we were to hang our hat on something, we talk about, you know, squatting it, pressing it, and pulling it for sure. Um and you know the basics will never go away. They've been they've been there for hundreds of years. They're not going away. The strongest guys in the world, the strongest women in the world, they don't do anything fancy, but they do it pers- consistently, and they do the basics really well. I've seen it. I've seen it in the weight rooms in, in Beijing with our athletes, and in London on the two Olympic teams I was on, and I had all those all those athletes I saw at UCLA. You got to remember too now. During the winter in January, UCLA, Europeans come over and train because they can run outside. So at the time, I was able to see, you know, the world record holder in the discus from Bulgaria. I was Patrick Joberg, who was a seven-foot high jumper out of Sweden. All these great European athletes were coming over, and they weren't doing anything fancy, and they're still not doing anything fancy, you know. Um, so, and I think the other the other part of that is we're very in tune to having valid and reliable test protocol so every test that i run is the same same testing protocol that the coach who runs tennis does or golf or women's basketball that way we can we can compare and uh, as a side note i think when we get to the nsa nsca conference this summer 
we are hopefully going to be able to have up to 10 poster presentations on research we're doing here on the floor. I don't think any strength and conditioning program in the country has ever done that. So we're actually testing to see uh, if what we're doing is helpful. And we're not doing the basic stuff like, you know, we took our basketball team and squatted and then did vertical jumps and see who jumped the highest. Nothing like that. We're going to do something a little bit farther out from that. Maybe some velocity stuff. We've got a really good jump testing protocol that we're using. Maybe something more along the lines of do the highest, the, jump, the players who jump the highest score the most. Does the person who bench presses the most have the strongest forehand in tennis? You know, something that... I mean, we're not we're not squatting to see if we can have a heavier squat. We're squatting to see if we can run fast and then score more points and win more games. So it wouldn't do us any good if we were to say, "Gee, we're really good at having heavy squatters." If you don't doesn't end up on the court or the pitch or the pool. So um, I think that's really structured how we're doing things. I'm very much into seeing the developmental progress as well. So not only can we count on my 300-yard shuttle being the same as um, tennis's 300-yard shuttle, but I can also count on the fact that I'm looking at freshman development. I need to see that freshman development happen. I know what those numbers should look like. We shouldn't be seeing incoming freshmen making 20% squat gains. That should be 40% just on learning and neuromuscular coordination, all these things. I need to see developmental progress happen. That's structured. I mean, I expect a number to come out of there. We're looking at all the freshman numbers across the table, sophomore, junior, and senior, but not only your, but also what kind of changes do you make from freshman to junior or sophomore to senior? What kind of changes are being made there? And that's how, um, and you talked about it off air a little bit about your program changing year to year. We should see that. We should see that program because, you know, strength's going to become less of an emphasis if you when you get older if you've done the right training it should be now power and speed but in the beginning creating power as a freshman comes out of just pure strength mm. later on you're going to get strong enough and now we need to refine it now it's that old thing how strong is strong right mm -hmm. so I, I would say it's very structured but i wouldn't say that i'm I'm leaning over everybody's shoulder saying that should be five sets of two and says if i sets of three not that sort of thing but you know we're 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 functional and we're we have a basic progression. We're not starting our freshmen out snatching right away if they can't pull the bar off the ground. It doesn't make any sense. In in terms of how you you develop that program, so you, you alluded to what we spoke to off air, and uh, I was talking about your presentation that you did at uh, Jay's Central mm -hmm. Virginia seminar this year, which you said if your program looks the same in year four as it did in year one, you're not training the guys correctly so yeah. you've, you've alluded to how that program does progress from more kind of force emphasis to, to power and velocity emphasis yes. but what is the criteria that you use to progress that is it a chronological one or is it a kind of uh, you have to hit certain numbers and then you get progressed it's a combination of both because really the chronology is inherent to college athletics freshman sophomore junior senior right and then you have red shirt maybe in there so it's not like pro sports where you may have somebody's 25 and somebody's 35 you know that there's there's some chronology there but there's also other things so many other things are happening the good news is that the freshman is a freshman you know he's not 30 years old it's typically 17 18 year old man or woman untrained uh, inexperienced um and 
the freshman is typically the same kid. It's been, it's, to me, it's been the same kid since 1981 when I started working. It, it, that's never changed, um, which is also kind of a, 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 a social dilemma for us too because while that freshman's physiology hasn't changed over the years, society has changed a bunch, so you kind of have to roll with that a little bit too. But that's a whole other topic. Um, so, you know, within the sport, it's different. So I can't expect my my freshman point guard to have the same sort of progress, perhaps, as the freshman tennis player, just because the requirement of the sports and the requirement of strength in that sport might be different. But what we'll do is we'll look at our tennis players and see over and over what that freshman profile looks like and end up coming up with ideas. And at some point, I think we all know that when we start gaining strength, it goes up like this, it tails off. The idea is right up in here is where you have to make your, okay, now it's time to make my move here. Let's get into some ballistic pulling and snatching and maybe a little more plyometrics and lower the squat volume, keep the intensity high so we don't lose strength. I think that's that's another kind of PS to the story of velocity-based training. If you're going to do that, that means the weight's light because you're moving it fast, but that also means you got to be careful about losing strength because where you think you may be creating power, you're probably losing power because now you've lost your strength. Yeah. Uh, but so, you know, I think every sport has its own little piece. Right now I'm finding in men's basketball that – around 200 kilos seems to be the place that squatting is going to stop. So not only do I think they're strong enough now, but I think now there's a, now, now we're getting to a risk, a risk factor. Like how, how many times you want to put a guy under a bar like that? It's much easier to make them faster and move the bar faster than it is to go up 50 pounds when you're starting to hit that, that wall. Right. Absolutely. That's, that's some big time training right there that you have to go. I mean, um, so, Every sport has that thing, and I think we're all looking at that that piece right there, the vertical jump tailing off, the 20-yard dash training off, the squat starting to tail off. I think that's what you need to look at. And, and again, I've, I've said this at Jay's thing, you know, common sense and intuition and, and science. You have to have all three of them to get the best results. You can't just look at data. You also have to have some intuitive nature to you about the sport, about that kid, um, to realize – Okay, it's time now. It's time now to do that, and that and that number ends up over time becoming a, a pretty good stake in the ground to say, okay, you know. And so, if you make a mistake, you know, twenty, thirty pounds on either side, I don't think we're losing anything there. But I, but I do think, and I, we just finished having this conversation over at football. I just had a staff meeting over there. That what do you do with a freshman kid if you know that all your freshman kids are making thirty to forty percent gain in their first year off their max squat? A kid who squats. 600 pounds, but he's only made 15%. Do we add more weight on the bar? He's probably strong enough. <laughs> well, he might be. He might be, but then, but then I think that's where you, you, know, you have to kind of use some intuition there. Like, okay, so we're missing about another 20% of strength. It should come easily to him. If he's getting stronger and he is 18, we should get a better jump and speed out of him. So I, I say it's probably not a bad idea to make one more pass, one more cycle at that to see what you can get out of it. But in the end, that that progress, you know, goes to that sport. We know the freshmen generally make this much progress in this sport, and they typically squat this in this sport. And you know, what what should we do there? But that and that's where you know, not relying on the numbers is really key. But you have to use the numbers along with some of the other things you're interpreting. 
So obviously it's, <clears throat> it's really important that you're, you're striking that balance between the work that they're getting done in the weight room, but then also sport practice. So you, yeah. you can't necessarily push on both fronts at the same time and Correct. You, you have to be reactive to what's going on. How much of that is uh, a blind process where you don't actually get to see what's been done at, um, at practice and what kind of stuff they're doing? And how much do you rely on data to try and uh, bridge that gap? All my coaches try to get out of practice whenever they can. You know, unfortunately, some of them have more than one team, right? And I, I, I have the virtue of having the one team, and I overlook track sprinting. I'm gonna looks like I'm gonna take men's soccer back again, if if anything, driving that program for sure. But I think you have to be at practice if you're a strength coach. I think you have to be there. I think you have to watch what that looks like and get a grip on that training. I, I think as a strength coach, you have to typically in season air on the cautious side of volume. I don't I don't know that you should ever err on the side of intensity. I think intensity has to be there. I think if you're not if you're not hitting, you know, ninety percent a few times during the season, you're making a mistake. Um, with you know, an accommodative volume, of course. Um, but, you know, over the course of years, I, you know, I, I think a great strength coach understands the sport and can speak the sport language as well. So it's pretty difficult. Good time is for a man. Or if you don't know, you know, the, the kind of runs that, a, that an outside back will make uh, in soccer or, you know, how, how little a defender in a certain offense goes forward, you know, when you're talking about GPS and all that kind of stuff. I think you need to know that that's part of of identifying the training loads and programs that you're going to come up with. Um, so, but yeah, I think if you're not taking that into consideration, again, that's a huge mistake. I mean, it's going to be reflected in your data. And by that, I mean, you may not see it, but it's going to be there. And so now you're interpreting unreliable data unbeknownst to you. Right. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, you've, let me think how many years, is it 33 years as a strength coach? Yeah, maybe I think 34, 33, yeah, something like that. What What more do you have to learn, or or what what bugs you that you need to get better at? Um, I really like the tracking idea, you know, and and, and I'll tell you, I mean, my my quest for my quest for wanting to be, you know, one of the top strength coaches in the world, I think, keeps you wanting to get better. The tracking stuff. I like because it gets me closer to certainty. When I get a training program out and, you know, and I, and I look at assigning percentages in the weight room, you know, over the course of a, a yearly cycle, a yearly plan, which I think, you know, is necessary. I take a yearly plan, 52 weeks, draw out the whole year. I just keep one piece of paper. I write all my workouts off that because it's all, it's all there. Um, I think I'm pretty sure about how I'm going to make everybody feel on those days. I know how they're going to be. Pretty sure. I think I'm pretty good at it. But it's not at, with 100% certainty. This tracking stuff gets me to that. If I can do that, why wouldn't I do that? You know, I think I, I'm not the old guy who says, oh, I don't need that stuff. I know what I see. I've been doing this for 30-something years. I, I, I say, good, don't get it. Don't get it. I'll get it. <laughs> Let me get it. <laughs> and then I hope we play you. You know, I think if it, if it helps me get better, and I think it's pretty good stuff. I think that the data part of it is maybe a little bit out of hand right now, but 
uh, I like the data part. That's I don't know if it's about learning anything out of that or not, though, but I think it's just getting me closer to certainty to making athletes better. Um, and, you know, as I said before, you know, the physiology of the body hasn't changed in hundreds of years, right? What we know about the physiology has changed. And so who knows? You know, I'm always reading books and I'm always looking at the research to see if something pops out somewhere where I can get an edge and, and start early on something when others aren't. Uh, that's really the reason why we got catapulted here early on because there was only eight teams in the country that had it in the NC2A. And I figured, let's get on that right now. You know, well, let's get ahead of the ahead of the whole deal right now. Um I'm, I'm trying to put part. pressure on our guys to, to get that system now. Are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I said, the, the analogy is if you've, you've got a star player and you're not measuring that kind of stuff, it's like a Ferrari where you've purposefully taken out the dashboard. So, yeah, we'll see how it goes, man. Um, who, are the, who are the people that have been most influential on you as a coach or, or people that you listen to most? Well, I can tell you right now, Al Vermeil is the guy that I went to go see in 1980 or 81 at the 49ers camp in Rockland, which was only about an hour and a half away from where I was going to school. In short, I spent one day watching him coach. And on the way home, I was saying to myself, if I can feel like that and look like that every day, that's what I want to do. <laughs> and, you know, shit, 34 years later, you know, I mean, he's so, and, and consequently, not only was his energy and presence uh, striking to me, but he cemented what I was just beginning to learn. He was very much involved in the in the early '80s, and even in hell in high school before he got the job at with the 49ers. Very much involved with the Olympic weightlifting, plyometrics, you know, ballistics, those sort of things. And that's where I wanted to go. I liked. I. I it made sense to me, you know. Um, so I mean, I guess I, I don't want to be. A, a guy. I'm an Olympic lifting guy. I'm a powerlifting guy. I'm a CrossFit or whatever. I, I don't think that. I think if you do that, it stops you from developing the athlete to the fullest. In other words, if I'm an Olympic lifting guy and I got a guy with a bad wrist, then are you an Olympic lifting guy anymore? Because he can't do that, right? <laughs> so I have machines. I have bands. I have everything else. I, I, I want to keep my guy training. That's what it is. And again, it all goes to running faster and jumping higher. So if if doing the bands for a week until I get his wrist right gets him to do that, then that's what we're doing. So Alvar Meal, without a doubt, is one of them. Nutrition-wise, Dr. Jose Antonio of the ISSN, I mean, he's he's changed the way I think about nutrition. Uh, when I first got with him, when I uh, back in you know the late, oh probably early two thousands, and just his his evidence based research and all what I call his posse around him, you know, Jeff Stout, Darren Willoughby, all those guys, and then all the guys like Bill Kramer and Andy Fry and David Zemanski, these guys. And I, I really like Rob Newton a lot uh, and some of the things he does. And uh, Mike McGuigan, uh, Paul Comfort. Some, I'm, I'm liking some of that new stuff that's coming out. Uh, so those guys I've really tracked. They've changed a lot of the way I think. Or, like I say, you know, Read, read stuff, talk to folks, because what will happen is it'll either confirm or deny what you already know. Both those things are good. You, it's a win-win. You know, if you can if you can persuade me that what I'm doing's not as good as what you want me to, I'm going to do it. I mean, why wouldn't I? For sure. Uh, so that's that's kind of my my uh, 
those guys are the guys I really look at look at as changers. Where can people find you online? Jeez, well, uh, I'm on Twitter, but you know, now that I think about it, I, I don't even know what I am on Twitter right now. <laughs> I think it's Coach. <laughs> let Blake, me right? let me find it for you. You got it. Look for it. Let me have a look real quick. Just, anybody listening to this will let you know. He asked me, "Hey, what's your <laughs> what is your your uh, Skype name?" I said, "That's a good question. I, I know I have it, but I don't know what it is." <laughs> it's uh, Coach underscore Alejo, A L E J O. Yep. Yeah. So I, I finally got into the year 2016 by getting a Twitter account. I haven't even had it for a month, I don't think. Um, so I kind of got on board with that and thought, you know what, it's it's time to do that. You know, it's just that's kind of the way the world is going right now. So I like to get on there and talk about some things and talk about things I like and don't like, and you know, hopefully it's it's helpful in some way. I'm on Facebook the same way, a little bit. Get out there. Well, Bob, I uh, massively appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, this is so cool. I'm, I'm glad you called. I'm glad we connected. Great to see you again. Are you going to make it this year to uh, Jay's thing? Um, I, I don't think I'm going to. It's the middle of preseason for us, so we'll uh, we'll have to look at that, see if I can get the time off. Okay. Well, maybe we'll have to uh We'll have to get you over you. here. Oh, I, I, hey, I'm ready to go. Anytime you want, anybody wants to do something with me, I'm ready to go. Looks like uh, I talked to Tim Suckermel. Do you know Tim? I don't know Tim. I think he's with uh, Paul Comfort. Oh, okay. That group right now. They, we're getting ready to do something right now. I want to do something with, with pulls. Uh, um, doing doing pulling derivatives, not the full list. He's coming up with a lot of really good stuff. And that's kind of I've kind of been gone that way too. I haven't really done some full cleans in a long, long time. Oh really? Yep. I like I like the pulling. And yeah, that, that's I mean whole- with our guys it's like I I would never do the full stuff. Um if if possible, I'll just try and do the ballistics. Because uh, we, we get like a lot of hand, a lot of wrist. Yeah. And, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's even more difficult here. It's just like, if you, if you ask someone to do a power clean here, it turns into a reverse curl sumo squat. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's... It's um, a lot of stuff. Well, maybe you should find out the virtue of the reverse... <laughs> 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 the worst, yeah. reverse curl sumo squat. Maybe there's something there. Oh, dude. I'll, I'll, I'll be emailing with questions. Don't worry. <laughs> Please do. Bring me on. Bring me on again, too. We can talk about some other things. I'd love to. Yeah, man. We'd love to. Cheers for that, Bob. Okay. Thanks. See you later.